I have a disclaimer though. So this is Palm Sunday and we sang some awesome worship songs uh, about Palm Sunday specifically and the triumphal entry and stuff like that. This is not a triumphal entry sermon. So if you brought your palm branches and your cloaks and you're going to lay them in the aisle and we're going to do a whole thing, save that for next year. That's not what we're doing today. Um, So sorry to disappoint you. We're going to be doing a Palm Sunday adjacent message. So it's inspired by it. And I was going to try to get to the train of thoughts to where I landed here, but you can talk about me afterwards. I didn't want to confuse anybody. Um, so with, all, with those two things out of the way, um, let's talk about football. Because that's what we're here for, obviously. It's the perfect time of uh, year for that. You know, basketball just, March Madness just ended. Uh, we got golf going on and baseball. So football, why not? Um, but seriously, we are going to talk about a little bit about football. So I played football in high school um, 10 years ago now uh, over at Beachmont. I played for the Maryland Christian Saints. One of the things that is common in all sports, but because I'm a football guy, is in practice, the coaches will hammer the fundamentals over and over and over and over again of how to block, how to shed a block, how to tackle, how to run a route, how to catch. And you get drills over and over again in the middle of the games. If, if you miss a tackle, you go, you go back to the sideline, they're saying, hey, you got to get your, you know, got to get your breakdown move your feet, you know, don't, don't just run into somebody. The fundamentals are, a, are what make the game happen. If you watch a football game and nobody's doing the fundamentals, I don't even know what it would look like. If people just be running around, bumping into each other, like you, you have to have the fundamentals. Um, if you guys are Ravens fans, you'll, you might remember uh, the Lions game last year, and you guys probably already know what I'm gonna say. Um, Hollywood Brown was open, wide open, two or three times. I didn't rewatch it because I didn't want to dig up the painful memories of being wide open. Lamar throws the ball to him. We're all envisioning the catch, the run, the touchdown, the easy victory, the, and he drops it every time. <laughs> and um, it illustrates the fact that the, what, conter- what should have been an easy victory had it simply... He did his job, and I don't want to throw him under the bus. He, did, he had one of the most amazing catches I've ever seen the next game, was the fundamentals. The fundamentals, in that moment, the fundamentals lapsed, and everything almost didn't matter anymore, um, except for the fact we had the best kicker in the world. Um, but a receiver who can't catch is just a guy going for a run. Um, a lineman who can't block or a linebacker who can't tackle are only good for keeping the bench warm. At the end of the day, the fundamentals are what matter most. And the Christian life has fundamentals too, foundational building blocks that everything else builds on and depends upon. And obviously the biggest and most important fundamental is the gospel. Um, in Romans 1.16, Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. When he says it's the power of God for salvation, that means as a church, if we do anything without the gospel, no matter how, how dynamic the preaching is, how excellent the worship team is, how organized the kids' ministry is, how great the small group relationships are, if we don't have the gospel, we don't have anything. We're just a big social club with a, with a nice building. It's foundational to everything. If you don't have that, then what are we here for? We don't have, we don't have anything. 
So I'm grateful that we live in a church where, or we have a church, this church, where the gospel is treasured, it's central, it's preached on regularly, so I'm not going to do a deep dive into the gospel today, but I'm going to do something, talk about a Christian fundamental that's very closely related to that, about our relationship to the gospel, our relationship to the Jesus of the gospel. And so we're going to look at uh, Matthew 16. Uh, so if you have your Bible or Bible app, or you just want to forget that and look up at the screen, um, we will uh, we'll dig into Matthew 16. So I'm going to set kind of the scene here. In Matthew 16, starting in verse 13, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And if you remember that, they gave him some popular opinions of the day about Okay, is he a prophet? Is he a resurrected you know, prophet from old? Or what, who is this guy? So he gave them popular opinions. Then Jesus said, okay, great, but who do you say that I am? And this is Peter's great moment. He steps up and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Which is absolutely right, absolutely true. And Jesus praises him highly for it. And, and I only put it, included a little snippet of the praise there. He like really applauds Peter for, for this. And, but that's not what this sermon is about. Just a few verses later, in verse 21, um, Jesus is telling, foretelling the events of Easter, the events of Palm Sunday through Easter and the crucifixion, his arrest, uh, his arrest the suffering at the hands of the scribes and Pharisees. And this bothers Peter to the extent that he says, he takes Jesus aside and he says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And, and then something happens, which is what this sermon is going to be about. Jesus, who had just praised Peter for getting something so right, aggressively rebukes him. He says this, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, for anyone to call someone Satan, <laughs> that something serious is going on, not, not joking, in a joking way, for Jesus to do this, Jesus didn't do this. Like, this isn't something that Jesus did very often. It should make us see, hey, something serious just happened. And something serious is happening. A, a fundamental pr principle of Christianity was being violated, and, and Jesus wanted us all to make sure we see what's going on. And that principle, which is also the big idea for this message, is that the Christian life is denying yourself and following Christ. That it's fundamentally a God-centered life and not a man-centered life. So Jesus spends the next few verses talking about this principle, uh, which is where we're going to spend the rest of this morning looking at different verses that support this, different facets of it, and um, that's, this is where we're going to be. But we're going to read the passage, then we're going to pray, and then we're going to dig in. So um, let's read, starting in verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake 
will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels and the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. So let's pray and ask God for God's help. Lord, we need you. Um, Lord, we don't want to miss this. We want to see you for who you are. We want to relate to you as we should. We want to worship you the way you deserve to be worshipped, Father. You are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our lives. We ask that you would meet us and overcome our, our sin, our barriers in our hearts, Father, and, and show us who you are, that we would follow you. I ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so, I feel uh, constrained to defend the position that um, denying yourself and following Christ is a fundamental principle of the Christian life, because some of you may not have seen it that way. Um, so, I want to demonstrate it to you. Um, this passage in Matthew 16 is not on an island. It's not a unique, like off-the-wall statement that Jesus makes that we don't know what to do with, we just have in this other category. This is a common command in Scripture. So let's look at uh, a couple other passages that kind of show parallel thoughts. Um, Matthew 10, 37 to 39, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Philippians 3. Whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Hebrews 12, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And then Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated, at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now from those different passages, there's there's more like that, and even the Old Testament has, um, talks about similar thoughts, but we're not gonna go into the Old Testament, we don't have time, so... um, you can see it's, a, it's not uncommon for this to be a thing. This is a common command, a common um, plea that the New Testament makes to us. This doesn't necessarily mean that it's found fundamental to the Christian life, but it helps establish it. So we think we can all see that this is not an uncommon call that God has on us. Now I want us to think about the fact that the Bible has all kinds of commands. And the fact that Jesus was surrounded by people his whole life here on earth that were breaking commands all the time. You know what I mean? Like even the people that wanted to follow him, even the people that wanted to obey him, 
like Peter, were messing up all the time, but only in this circumstance did Jesus turn to him and call him Satan and like, you're not thinking about the things of God but the things of man. Like, this is something unique must have been happening here that caused him to say that. There's only a few times in Jesus' recorded life where he really like lays into someone. And so if you guys are familiar with Matthew 23, the woes to the scribes and Pharisees, uh, you can read that. <laughs> That's, that is a, that he, he takes them to the woodshed and it's, it's not pretty. He doesn't do that very often, but when he does, he does it to people that are supposed to be an example of godliness, but are being the exact opposite. So scribes and Pharisees were supposed to be the shepherds of God's people, and they were not being that. They were leading them the exact opposite direction. And so Matthew 23 is one example of that. Here in Matthew 16, Peter, another example of that, the one who just was praised and he basically promised, I'm going to build my church through you. And then Peter does that, and, and, and uh, Jesus kind of lays into him right there. So what was so wrong with what Peter did? Because that'll help us kind of understand what's going on here. So Jesus was foretelling the events of Easter. Peter was listening to the, to the Son of God foretell the most important event in human history. And because that didn't fit within his framework, because it didn't line up with his goals, because his aspirations weren't going to be fulfilled, he had to take Jesus aside and say, no, that ain't happening. Can you guys see that? That Peter was at the center. Everything revolved around Peter. Peter's expectations were what really mattered. Peter's goals were the ones worth pursuing. Peter knew the Son of God, but if the Son of God's words didn't work for Peter, Peter didn't have to change his mind. He had to correct God. That problem is what's fundamental. That is at root what sin is. Because we're not at the center. Everything does not revolve around us. Our goals are not the most worthy pursuits. Our expectations don't matter more than anything else. We're not at the center. Jesus is at the center. I want to show you that here in a couple different passages. Colossians 1. He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on the earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Ephesians 1. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time, to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. Hebrews 1. In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. 
He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Everything was created by him. Everything was created for him. Everything is sustained by him. His, Jesus is at the center. His expectations are what matter most. His goals are worth pursuing. Everything in history literally revolves around him. So if you would come after him, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. This is fundamental because of who Jesus is. So Jesus wasn't going to let Peter's comment, which he probably thought was helpful, slide because of who he had just set up Peter to be as a father of the church. Peter had to get this. If the church was going to grow, it had to know that it doesn't exist for itself, it exists for God. So, obviously, this, this command to deny yourself is a negative one, meaning it's telling you what not to do. Not, not to pursue your own, to optimize your own opportunities for pleasure and achievement, everything in this life. It's telling you to, not, to deny yourself what not to do. When stated positively, I think we can see even more how fundamental this is. Because instead of saying, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me, you could say, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. In Matthew 22, just a few chapters after this, somebody asked him, what the, Jesus, what the greatest commandment was, and he said this, you shall love, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. The whole Old Testament can be boiled down to this. The Christian life is not about us, it's about him. We don't exist for us, we exist to love God and to love others. So, I think we've established <laughs> that it's pretty fundamental that, our, that uh, the Christian life is denying ourselves and following Christ, but it becomes even more, because of the terms he used, more so foundational and fundamental to the Christian life because of the terms he uses in the next verses in Matthew 16. So, in, starting in verse 25, we read this a little bit ago, but let's read it again. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person, each person according to what he has done. Now, you may read, think that, read that and think, wait a minute. This sounds like he's talking about salvation and judgment here. Like this is, it sounds like he's talking about salvation here. And you'd be absolutely right. Like you can't take, that's exactly what he's talking about. You can't take the, the term, you'd lose your, like you'd lose, forfeit your soul and take it as something other than that, other than he's talking about salvation. Uh, there's not really, a, there's, 
You can't make a scenario work where you're saved by Christ, you're with him forever, but you lost your soul. Like a, like a lower tier of salvation where, gosh darn it, I wish I'd followed him because I don't have my soul for eternity. That's not the way this works. When he's, when he's saying, he's talking about salvation. So then you may be also thinking, I thought, I thought salvation was by grace alone through faith alone, which you'd also be absolutely correct. That's, we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. So why is Jesus making it sound like you, would lose your, like you wouldn't be saved if you don't take this extra step of denying yourself and following him? And that's because it's not an extra step. It's the step. And it's not just the first step, it's all the steps afterwards. Now, that might be blowing up your conception of Christianity, and this might be a good thing, but let me explain, make sure I'm not, like, I see that you can see that I'm not getting away from grace through faith. So we're gonna look at this from two aspects. What it, how denying yourself relates to salvation and how following Jesus relates to salvation. So we'll look at the first one, how denying yourself relates to salvation. Um, <clears throat> Ephesians 2 says, before you were saved, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that, now, that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So we were born with an inherent sin nature. And if you were old enough to remember what it was like to not be saved before you got saved, like you, that, that resonates with you. That resonates, I, I didn't get saved until I was 18. This resonates with me. I know what, it, what it's like to pursue the passions of my body and mind, and that be the highest goal. <clears throat> but that's what we are by nature without Christ. Maximize pleasure or comfort achievement, or whatever it was for you that was that goal. Romans 1, starting in verse 21, Paul, referring to sinners, says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And then I'll skip down to verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So here, Paul is getting at the fact that the root of sin is knowing that there is a God and preferring anything else to him, preferring the creation over the creator. In Jeremiah 2, 12 through 13, doubles down on this conception of sin when it says, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that could hold no water. 
And that's, that's what sin is. Seeing a fountain of living water and being so distorted in our hearts that we would prefer the rain, dirty rainwater in the hole in the ground that's broken at the bottom. It can't even satisfy because the water is, well, it's because it can't satisfy because two things. The one is dirty rainwater and the other is that there's a hole in the ground and it's all leaking out the bottom. That's who we are naturally. We prefer anything more than God. That's what sin is. So when you hear the gospel and you're convicted of your sin, you're not just convicted of the things that you've done. You're convicted of the person that you are. There's a, it's, it's not that, oh, I'm a good person, but I messed up some time, a few times. It's, I am a sinner. The person who has preferred, we're, we're convicted of the person who has preferred the finite over the infinite, the person who is a sinner, the person who does wrongs. That's who we are without Christ. When we are repenting of our sins, we're repenting of ourselves. We're denying ourselves and we're turning to him. That's how denying yourself relates to salvation. Let's look at following Jesus in relation to salvation. And this gets to the nature of faith. Um, that faith is, just, is not just an intellectual understanding of a truth. Um, I don't have this up here, but James 2, 19 says, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons believe and they shudder. Like the demons have a much fuller and more accurate understanding of God than you do and that doesn't help them at all. The problem is that knowing something is not enough to pull our sinful hearts away from our own desires, we're blind. We can't see. No matter how much you tell someone about Jesus or the theological truths of the gospel, it won't change them unless something more happens. And that's where 2 Corinthians 4 comes in. Uh, Paul, speaking of this phenomenon, says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The thing that has to happen in order for us to have faith is for God to open our eyes. For the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, to shine in our hearts, to see Jesus for who he is. Faith is a blind man opening his eyes for the first time and saying, I'm never going back. Faith is a deaf person who can finally hear, hearing the voices of their loved ones, the birds singing outside, the wind blowing through the branches, the cars driving by and saying, I can't believe, I didn't know that this was what it was like. That's what faith is. Faith is finally seeing and preferring Jesus. 
because he's opened your eyes to see who he really is and how bad your previous condition really was. And faith propels you to follow the thing that you can now see. Faith drives you to sell everything you have, to buy that field that has the treasure in it that you found there because you know that treasure is more valuable than everything else that I have. So I'm going to, I'm going to get that. <clears throat> and this, this was my experience, and, and it, it happens a thousand different ways for all of us, but the, the, the similarities is that once you couldn't see, and then you could. So I, I grew up in a Christian home, um, and I, I mentioned earlier I didn't get saved until I was 18. I thought I was saved um, since I was about seven. I prayed um, with my mom and thought that was the end of it. Um, I attended church every Sunday. I was always at youth group. Like, I was at church, like, two or more times a week. Um, but throughout high school, the sinfulness of my heart became more and more apparent and, being, and through being around, regularly being around to other people that knew God, godly people, I came to realize that I didn't have a relationship with God. It, definitely not the way they did, but not even close, if at all. And God was putting his finger on my heart until... I couldn't avoid it anymore. <clears throat> so I ended up praying for help. And it wasn't even a traditional sinner's prayer. It was, and I can't remember the specific words, but God, I can't do this. I can't be a Christian. I need help. And somewhere during that prayer, something changed. Suddenly, where there had been guilt and shame, there was joy and peace. A weight that I didn't realize had been there, or I didn't really feel the whole weight of it was lifted, and everything was different. And I remember one of my first thoughts that sticks with me wow, this is real. <laughs> this is real. And all I knew was that I had to follow him. And, and I wouldn't have put it in those terms, um, but that's what my whole heart was crying out for. So I, was, so I went home and I started reading my Bible. Like I had, I just started in Genesis and started reading. I think I got stuck in Leviticus and then I jumped somewhere else in the Bible because Leviticus is, you know, Leviticus. Um, but I started reading and I, I started digging into it and and I was in a unique position in life where I just graduated high school. I didn't really know what I was going to do with my life. But this had just dropped in my life like a bomb. And I was like, this is the most important thing. So four months later, I'm enrolling at a Bible college because <clears throat> I wanted to know more. Everything changed. Even, it was funny looking back on my Facebook profile, like the nature of my posts and conversations with people just like, fundamentally changed. It was so, so weird seeing like an actual record of that. But it's because I could see and I had to follow him. If, if the worship team can come up and, and join me. Dying to yourselves and following Jesus is not an extra step to the Christian life. It's the step 
And it's the next step. And it's the next step. And the next step. And the next step. Colossians 2.6 says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. To die to self and follow Jesus is to become a Christian and to be a Christian. So if you are a Christian, what, I want you to see that this is, like, this is fundamental to our relationship with God. This is what the Christian life is. Keep dying to yourself and keep following Jesus. And like, search your heart. Is there something else at the center that's creeped in that at once you could see Jesus clearly and you're like, this is, this is who I'm following. And something else through, you know, the worries of life or whatever has creeped in to where now money is the, the main thing. Or you have a, a goal that you want to achieve, a dream that you've always wanted to have, and that's the center, that's the goal, that's the, that's, your life is wrapped up in that. Is, is there something in your heart that's there that's, that's, that you've displaced Jesus with? I don't want to use the term put Jesus first because that's, that's insulting to Jesus. Jesus is first. So start revolving your life around him. And if you can't see the way you once saw Christ in his, in his glory, ask him. Ask him. Ask him for help. He wants to show you his glory. So if, if you're not a Christian, and this is all foreign to you, I, w- I want you to see that God is inviting you into something much bigger than yourself. Something much greater than the things you're clinging on to or you're pursuing. If you're trying to find life in a relationship, if it's trying to find life in in money, if you're trying to find life in pleasure or achievement or anything else, know that God is not trying to take away what's best to make you do what he wants. It's the opposite. He wants to give you what's best, the thing that you're really after. That at root, we all want to be satisfied. We all want to have joy. And you can gain the whole world and still not have that. Because the life you're looking for is in Christ. He's the center. Life is from him. It's for him, sustained by him. So if you would come after him, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Let's pray, and then we'll, um, you can stand and we'll sing after we pray. Father, Open our eyes to see. Father, we need you. We ask that you would would move in our hearts, bring us closer to you. We need your help to follow. We ask that you would move in Jesus' name. Amen.